Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from different decades. This season, going over cases from 1990 through 1999. If you would like to support my show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps more people to find it. I also have a link to where you can buy me a coffee. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now on to today's story, which is of a female murderer from 1997. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1997, IBM's Deep Blue chess playing computer defeated chess champion Gary Kasparov. The computer won game six of the matchup, becoming the first computer to defeat the world champion chess player under tournament conditions. At this point in Kasparov's career, the 34-year-old had never lost to a human opponent and the loss to Deep Blue was the first time he had to resign a game in less than 20 moves. Deep Blue's win marked an important point in the development of artificial intelligence, as observers noted it as a point when computers' development began to outpace human development. That same year, the first book in the award-winning Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling was published as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in Europe, and was later released in the United States in 1998 as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Another thing that happened in 1997 was a woman so desperate for drugs, she would kill for it. Please join me in walking down Yuri Lane. The extreme violence was more than addiction but sadism. I never forgave her. She never admitted her guilt. I do recall a relative who experienced addiction and their family say, Kimberly McCarthy gives the addicts a bad name. I thought this to be an interesting perspective. These are some quotes from the daughter of the victim of this story when she shared a few email messages with me. But before we get to the case, I want to discuss the effects drugs have on people and violence that can come from it. Some of the most addictive drugs are cocaine, heroin, alcohol, nicotine, and methamphetamine. Drug addiction is considered a disease that impacts brain circuitry and behavior, and it is classified by an inability to control drug use. Addictive drugs act on the pleasure center in the brain, causing a shortcut to reward that, when repeated, can change the way a person processes information. Drugs' addictive qualities may be enhanced by how good they make a person feel when using them, and how bad they may make users feel when they wear off. 
Chronic drug abuse can induce drug dependency, which leads to withdrawal symptoms and drug cravings without the drug's presence. Research indicates that up to 75% of individuals who begin treatment for an SUD, substance use disorder, report having engaged in physical assault, mugging, using a weapon to attack another person, and other violent crimes. The connection between drug addiction, alcoholism, and violence crosses many thresholds, individual psychology, public health, and domestic violence, to name a few, and is vitally important in understanding the scope of how controlled substances can affect people. Substance abuse is the largest precipitator of violence in adults and adolescents, but there are other factors that impact an individual's behavior and contribute to a person's aggressive tendencies. Risk factors tend to exist in a cluster rather than isolation. Thus, risk factors for aggressive behaviors may stem from a combination of factors, including age, co-occurring mental health problems, polysubstance use, gender, a family history of drug or alcohol abuse, adverse childhood experiences, genetic predisposition, antisocial attitudes and beliefs, and their location. Drug misuse is a global public health concern. Worldwide, around 70 million individuals were diagnosed with a drug use disorder. In addition, drug use disorders increase risk of violence against others. And although research has consistently found increased violence risk in drug use disorders, individual studies have shown that the magnitude of this increased risk varies depending on the drug category. The correlation between substance abuse and violent behavior has been well documented. One study found that more than 26% of respondents who reported using alcohol, cannabis, and cocaine in a 12-month period also reported committing a violent crime within the same time frame. Some individuals use aggressive techniques to steal money to buy more drugs. Others may be involved in the drug trafficking, which often leads to violent crimes. For others, violence is a long-term side effect of the substance they abuse. Individuals addicted to methamphetamine, for instance, may suffer from anxiety, confusion, insomnia, mood disorders, and aggressive or violent behavior. In addition, the psychological risks associated with cocaine use include violent, erratic, or paranoid behavior. Similarly, hallucinogens may cause unpredictable, erratic, and violent behavior that can lead to serious injury or even death. Crime is closely associated with SUDs. Research suggests that among prison populations, drug abuse and dependence were found in 10% to 48% of men and 30% to 60% of women. Studies indicate that violent offenders are more likely to abuse sedatives and alcohol, which is substantially elevated compared with the prevalence, ranging from 0.6% to 4% in men and 0.3% to 2.9% in women in the general population. 
Furthermore, it has been suggested that certain types of stimulants, such as crack cocaine, that are associated with irritability and aggressiveness might have a higher risk of criminal behavior than others, including less strong forms of cannabis that might reduce risks due to sedative and calming effects. Also, physical and psychological effects of drugs can lead to agitation, aggression, and cognitive impairment that might in turn heighten risk of violence. Individuals with drug use disorders might also turn to violence to finance their drug use, and disputes within illegal drug markets might be associated with violence. In an epidemiological review called Drug Use Disorders and Violence, Associations with Individual Drug Categories, it examined the association between drug use disorders and violence. They identified 18 eligible studies from five countries, with 591,411 individuals meeting diagnostic criteria for drug use disorders. There were two main findings. First, was that individuals with a diagnosed drug disorder have a four to tenfold higher risk of perpetrating violence compared with general population or individuals without the drug use disorder being studied. All of the examined categories of drug use disorders, including cannabis, hallucinogens, stimulants, opiates, and sedatives, were associated with elevated violence risks. Of the total of 37 included studies, they found increased risk of violence in 34 studies. Although the odds of increased risk of violence in drug use disorders are not dissimilar to those in other neuropsychiatric conditions, their importance is greater from a public health perspective because drug use disorders are more prevalent than severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. In addition, although drug use disorders are not more prevalent than disorders such as depression and anxiety, their risk of violence is usually higher. Therefore, drug use disorders have greater population impact when taking into account both prevalence and relative risk. This underscores the importance of treating drug use disorders as part of any public health approach to violence prevention. Despite this, most individuals with drug use disorders do not receive treatment. In the United States, among individuals with 12-month and lifelong drug use disorders, only 14% and 25% receive treatment, leading their reviewers to decide more efforts should be made to improve accessibility of treatment for individuals with drug use disorders. Together, the treatability of drug use disorders, unmet needs, and risk of adverse outcomes present an opportunity to improve public health and safety. Substance abuse and addiction cost American society upwards of $600 billion every year in healthcare expenses, criminal justice, and legal costs, and lost workplace production. They also found that the association with intimate partner violence was less strong than with general violence, and that this may be because individuals with drug use disorders are less likely to have partners, and those who do have partners might present with less severe symptoms of drug use disorders. 
The drug connected to today's story is cocaine, a stimulant drug derived from the cocoa plant that grows natively in South America. Cocaine is illicitly manufactured in either a white powder or rock form, known as crack. Cocaine powder is snorted, smoked, or injected, while crack is generally smoked. Cocaine creates an intense high as it floods the brain with dopamine, the neurotransmitter involved in pleasure. The effects are quick to begin, significant, and short-lived. Crack cocaine can be more addictive than the powdered form of the drug. Smoking or injecting cocaine also introduces the substance into your bloodstream faster, allowing it to take effect more rapidly and putting you at a higher risk of dependence. The danger of cocaine use is how rapidly users can develop a tolerance. Because the first use of cocaine represents a novel experience for your brain, subsequent episodes of cocaine use will produce less intense results, leaving you chasing a high. Cocaine increases euphoria, excitement, and alertness. And according to the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, it is highly addictive and may be regularly abused in a binge pattern. Binge cocaine use refers to taking doses back-to-back in order to maintain the high, which is often followed by a crash that can cause physical and mental fatigue, depression, and severe drug cravings. Kimberly McCarthy, a 36-year-old nursing home therapist, struggled with a cocaine addiction. So much so that on July 21, 1997, in Lancaster, Texas, she called her 71-year-old neighbor, Dr. Dorothy Booth, and asked if she could drop by to borrow some sugar. When Dorothy opened the door, McCarthy attacked her by stabbing the woman five times, hit her in the face with a candelabrum, and even cut off her left ring finger in order to take her diamond ring. McCarthy then left the home with Dr. Booth's purse, wedding ring, and fled in her Mercedes. McCarthy used the stolen money to buy drugs, pawned the wedding ring for $200, and also used Booth's credit cards at a liquor store. The evidence quickly led police to Kimberly McCarthy. McCarthy was caught with Dr. Booth's driver's license, and her Mercedes was found outside the crack house McCarthy was at. When arrested, McCarthy blamed the crime on two drug dealers, but there was no evidence that pointed to either of the men existing. In addition, McCarthy had convictions for forgery, theft of services, and prostitution. And while incarcerated, awaiting trial, McCarthy assaulted, threatened, and took advantage of other inmates, and violated many prison rules. At this time, her DNA was also connected to two murders, just days from each other, in December 1988. The murders of Maggie Harding and Jetty Lucas. Maggie was an 82-year-old, longtime friend of McCarthy's family, who had helped organize McCarthy's wedding and who had let McCarthy store excess furniture at her house. She was stabbed several times in the face, chest, and abdomen. 
She also suffered a broken jaw, crushed cheekbone, and bleeding on the brain. These wounds were consistent with being caused by a meat tenderizer found in the kitchen sink. Her purse was also missing from her home. Jetty was 85 years old, physically disabled, and a distant cousin of McCarthy's mother. Jetty was stabbed in the face. She also suffered blunt force trauma to her head and neck, including strikes that fractured her skull and caused bleeding on the brain. These injuries were consistent with a claw hammer found near Jetty's body. The contents of her purse and wallet were missing. Kimberly McCarthy was indicted for murder on these two cases, but never tried for them. She was, however, tried for Dr. Booth's murder. The jury found her guilty. At the sentencing phase, the jury heard testimony from McCarthy's ex-husband, Aaron, who asked the jury to consider the depth of his wife's crack addiction and give her life in prison. He explained that McCarthy was a good mother, but so addicted to crack cocaine that she disappeared from home for days at a time to feed her drug compulsion. That he often had to track her down in southeast Dallas, finding her with drug dealers and crack houses. He stated, I've spent 12, 13, 14 hours a day in the middle of winter or the heat of summer, find her, and put her in the back seat or the trunk of the car and take her home. I tried to help her kick her drug habit because when she was not using cocaine, she was devoted to our five year old son and tried to be a good wife and homemaker. Other relatives of McCarthy testified that she was not a violent woman and that she was, at times, a good wife and mother. But the prosecution entered evidence at this time that McCarthy had been charged with capital murder and two other deaths of women in 1988, and this sealed her fate. The jury sentenced Kimberly McCarthy to death. Kimberly McCarthy was the eighth woman to be placed in the woman's death row at Mountain View Unit in Gatesville. That had only eight cells. So in 2000, the woman's death row unit was expanded, with Texas spending $97,000 on renovations to the multi-purpose building at the prison's southern edge. The roof of the one-story red brick building was rimmed with razor wire. An adjacent driveway and grassy area were fenced off, and basketball goals were planted in the asphalt to serve as a recreation yard. Automatic locks were placed on the cell doors. New bunks and fixtures were installed. The new cell block was divided in half, with six cells on each side. Between them are a workroom and a day room, each marked with a small yellow triangle designating them as high-security areas. Inside each cell stands a single steel bunk with a built-in locker a stainless steel toilet, and a writing shelf, all bolted to the cinder block walls. Each has a single window 
about three feet square, but the glass is frosted and barred from the outside. Showers are down the hall, behind more bars, over which a blue curtain can be pulled for privacy, and their quarters have some air conditioning. The routine for the women on death row is breakfast at 4.30 a.m., work detail at 7 a.m., lunch at 10.30 a.m., followed by more work, a recreation period, and dinner at 3.45 p.m. Then it's back to the cells for the day. The work program allows the condemned woman to sew clothes for dolls and make lap quilts to sell to prison employees. Only three of the women on death row participate. Kathy Lynn Henderson, convicted in the 1994 abduction and murder of three-month-old Brandon Bow, whom she had been babysitting, Kimberly McCarthy, and Darlie Router, convicted in the 1996 stabbing death of her five- and six-year-old sons in their home. By the time the new renovations were done, there were only seven on the women's death row. The three mentioned above, along with Frances Elaine Newton, convicted for the 1987 murder of her estranged husband and two children for insurance money. Bernie Hallberg, convicted in the 1996 robbery and murder of 80-year-old A.B. Towery Sr. in his home. Susan Bezo, convicted in the 1998 beating death of a 59-year-old man who was mentally challenged for his insurance money. And Erica Shepard, convicted in the 1993 robbery and murder of Marilyn Sage Meager. She and a co-defendant killed the victim in an attempt to steal her car. Carla Faye Tucker, who was the eighth death row inmate, was executed in 1998. Unfortunately, McCarthy's conviction was overturned after an appeals court determined that her confession was obtained illegally after she'd requested a lawyer. But this retrial came with better DNA technology, and a most crucial piece of evidence came after the forensic testing of a 10-inch butcher knife found in McCarthy's home. The knife had been washed, but forensics experts dismantled its plastic handle and recovered a big enough sample to match it to that of Dr. Booth's genetic profile. McCarthy was convicted again in 2002 and sentenced to death. Kimberly McCarthy was executed on June 26, 2013. She was the 500th execution in the state of Texas since it was reinstated in 1982. On the day of her execution, about 40 protesters stood outside the prison, carrying signs saying, Death penalty, racist, and anti-poor. Stop all executions now. And... Stop killing to stop killings. As the hour for the execution approached, protesters began chanting and saying the old spiritual song, Wade in the Water. McCarthy's final statement was, This is not a loss. This is a win. You know where I'm going. I'm going home to be with Jesus. Keep the faith. I love you all. In a press statement, McCarthy's attorney, Maury Levin, stated, 500 is 500 too many. I look forward to the day when we recognize that this pointless and barbaric practice 
imposed almost exclusively on those who are poor and disproportionately on people of color has no place in a civilized society. But Donna Aldred, Booth's daughter, read a statement to reporters that said her mother was an incredible person who was taken before her time. After waiting for nearly 16 years, the finality of today's events have allowed me to completely say goodbye to my mother. I want to say a huge thank you to Murderpedia.com and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing a male murderer from the year 1997. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.